Welcome to the Viking and the Princess, a Lodestar story. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are fading away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 Once upon a time, in the mighty, raging Northland, there was a wild Viking who, despite his successes and conquest, never had a compass. He had many mighty men who followed him to battle, and many beautiful women who desired to follow him to his tent. But the Viking was restless. The Viking had been born as his mother died. She had named him Akeda, which is not a Norse name, but his father wanted it to remain because he loved her. Akeda's father had brought his mother home during his own adventure. Some scandal-tongued folks said that the dark-haired woman had been involved in her own intrepid exploits when she met the burly old man. They said she had not even been carried off in proper Viking fashion, but was actually steering the boat as it came into the fjord while the old Viking fished off the bow. She was certainly a queer woman who caused no end of gossip with her nonchalant diffidence towards the Norse deity. According to all the worldly wise women of the community, her failure to set up a hearth shrine to Freya was undoubtedly the cause of her demise and childbirth. Akeda traded places with his mother in his father's life, and he had been fairly happy with the arrangement, even if his father was slightly less so. After the Earth balances night and day in equinox, the spiraling planet begins to nod its head toward the sun and a warm veil falls across the forehead of the northern hemisphere. Winter rushed away from the Northland like a tide receding from shore, leaving spring revealed like low-tide ocean treasures. During this season, black soil billows up through the frost and glacier calves slide into the sea. As the sun rises ever higher into the brightening sky, the hearts of restless men also rise up to meet the call for adventure, and the gods lead men on great quests. In this rising warm air, a raven, a shadow in birdish form, gripped the hilt of Akeda's broadsword and flew away into the still-frozen mountains. The Viking pursued the bird windward into the frosted highland fog, the bird soared high, but each time it landed for rest, Takeda was not far behind. And finally, after trailing in the bird's shadow for a frozen fortnight, the Viking was able to lay hold of its fuliginous feathers. It was, in a flash of smoke, transformed into the scandalous visage of the Snow Queen. The Snow Queen, a pallid practitioner of wizardry, was the mother of the Arctic wolves. She smiled, or rather, drew back her purple lips to reveal neatly filed fangs. Her frosty face flushed purple under Akeda's grip as she lunged gracefully to retain her hold on the broadsword. The Viking was unrelenting, even as the witch's flesh grew hoarfrost and his blood retreated from his extremities. And thus they struggled, straightforward strength against sorcery until the alpenglow of the rising sun settled onto the distant mountain horizon. 
And then the Snow Queen hissed, You must release me now, Viking. You have won the favor of the gods of Asgarder. And as she spoke, the rising sun mounted on the morning sky and a rainbow fell from the heavens, illuminating the Snow Queen and the Viking. In these times, when the world was young and wild, the rainbow was known as the Bifrost Bow, the door into Asgard, the domain of the Viking gods. The gods have given you three gifts, she sniffed, with only a slightly perceptible air of covetousness furrowed into her frown. And there materialized at the Snow Queen's fur-booted feet an ordinary leather bundle. The first item was a bag of oranges from Iodin, who attended the apple trees in Asgarder. The apples were the secret of the gods' eternal youth. Even the gods of Asgard must swim within the current of time, and Iodin's apples enabled the gods to swim backwards against its flow. However, the apples had to remain fresh, eaten directly from the goddess's hand. Once the apple was unguarded by Iodin's fingers and exposed to open time, it became like flesh without blood. Nothing but dust for the wind to drive away. Akeda could not immediately understand what the significance of the citrus might be. But if they were from Iodin, these ordinary oranges must be comparable to her apples in some way. She paused. You may not be aware that the silver's particular magic is similar to the magical way that iron absorbs the magnetic power of a lodestone. Common silver struck against Thor's hammer 70 times 7 times also retains this power, but to a smaller degree and for a shorter period of time. The final item looked like a bedroll. It was packed in manger straw. The Vikings' people possessed a few scrolls from raids on monasteries in the Southlands, but they had little practical use for such oddities, keeping them merely as token trophies. This is a scroll of poetry from Othan himself. The most eminent of the Asgardian gods was Othan, the father. In his quest to provide aid and comfort to mortals, he had sacrificed himself to obtain and share the gifts of wisdom and runes. At the root of the world tree, he had traded his left eye for wisdom. On top of the world tree, he hung his body, pierced by his own sword, for mastery of runecraft. Runes are written words, and like all words, they are mystical etchings which make a bridge between men's minds and allow ideas to pass freely from one mind to another in the absence of sound. The gods of Asgarder could not understand why Othan would pay such a high price for runecraft. What was so important about the mastery of words that their great father would make a sacrifice for them? In addition to runecraft, Othan also wanted to gain the ability to make poetry, but he would have to get very drunk to do so. Othan stole the mead of poetry from an ugly old giant named Sutungur, who had stolen it from the dwarves. Satungur was uncouth, and his main talent was using his large size to try to bully dwarves. He had no practical use for the mead of poetry himself, but hoarded it under his mountain like an old dragon. He thought it might be useful in bargaining with the gods if he needed something. Othan made an attempt to buy the mead, but Satungur refused. Othan, Undaunted, seduced the giant's niece, who was supposed to be guarding the mead, and drank it down to the dregs over the course of a three-night rendezvous. In this philandering way, 
Othan became the ultimate master of elite poetic runecraft. Othan was generous and shared his gifts with the Northmen. To the Northmen, poetry was spiritually valuable for inspirational purpose. They believed that the magic of weaving runes together created an invisible fire that emanated heat and light but did not consume. These Northmen were not unlike the ancient samurai of Japan who believed that the beauty of calligraphic haiku was the perfect balance of the beauty of ferocious swordplay. Like a samurai... A balanced Viking warrior understood the balance of beauty and violence as well as he understood the balance between life and death. All warriors know that a life well-lived is lived in the understanding that every moment is balanced on the precipice of death. Whether that moment comes upon a warrior in peacetime or in wartime is beside the point because all time is equally precarious and precious. All of a warrior's actions take on meaning and therefore beauty because each action could be the last. Good poetry, like good life, excludes all superfluous verbiage. And it was considered the echo that would live on after the warrior was gone, as good as an infant son in the arms of a virtuous wife. Odin's scroll was wrought on a parchment of lambskin. It looked absolutely common. Akeda reverently placed the parchment in the bundle. He understood that some of the most sacred things in existence are commonplace. A home is homely. These gifts will serve you to the success of your quest. The Snow Queen was miffed at being bested by a smelly, hairy man in deerskin in front of the court of Asgard and was ready to busy herself with some other distracting mischief. I have no quest, Snow Queen, the Viking announced with authority that was likely bluster rather than gusto. The grouchy, beasty man persisted in his squabbling. Did he not know there was no point in existence for a questless man? Everyone knew a man without a mission was walking dead, Why would he not be satisfied with the gifts and leave her to her more pressing business of random villainies? Rightly, you say you have no quest, for you have no compass. Therefore, your quest is to find the compass of your father's. Your soul will continue to spin until you find it, for where there is no direction, the heart casts off restraint. The compass has been floating on the sea for three generations, and the gods have ordained the time for the compass's return. You will find it on an island in the Mediterranean called Atlantis. It is in the possession of a princess. Ah, a woman, Akeda spat. You underestimate Viking blood, Snow Queen. I would have thought you asked me to undertake a difficult task. Akeda was a bit of a misogynist, but in his defense, we must remember that women had been availing themselves to the Viking to no avail since he had come of age. It has been well known in all ages, except perhaps the present, that women who present themselves to men as convenient and accommodating tend to affect a mindset of misogyny in the men around them. It was not that the Viking did not like women. He just did not appreciate less than difficult tasks. Akeda believed that nothing easy is worthwhile, and therefore something as important as marriage should be extremely difficult or else it would be rendered meaningless due to its ease. However, bad behavior does not exonerate bad reaction. The Snow Queen's bewitching features remained as motionless as an eggshell. 
you will find the princess on the Mediterranean island metropolis of Atlantis. The Snow Queen had no use for men in the normal way, and she despised women who did. She much preferred to watch them freeze to death. Indeed, collecting frozen man carcasses was her main diversion to her lifestyle of skulking and proliferating the population of Arctic wolves. Just as leperodopterists enjoy mounting their stiff butterfly specimens on styrofoam, the Snow Queen savored her collection of frozen souls. She had become quite a connoisseur of various psyches over the millennia, delighting in mostly ones that were anchored at either end of the morality spectrum, either extremely righteous or extremely wicked. It seemed these days the whole world was awash with lukewarm souls going about their mediocre business. It had been a long time since the Snow Queen had been able to add anything of real value to her collection. The stolen broadsword was the faulty lure with which she had attempted to add the Viking's soul to her menagerie. He had slipped through her hand like a bird from a fowler's net, and now the gods had given him a quest. Ah, well, she sighed to herself... That is the ordination of the universe. Anyone who excels at a small task will be required to follow it up with even greater deeds.